Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Nefarious. For those of you who are new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Butchie, and I am a student at Arizona State University, currently studying criminal justice and forensic psychology. This podcast is a part of my final thesis project for both of my undergraduate degrees. And if you have not already, I suggest going back and listening to the first episode of this podcast just because it offers a little bit more of an introduction of who I am and what this project is all about. So in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the unfortunate epidemic that is police brutality and police violence against racial minority groups. With this in mind, we are going to be looking at the cases of Philando Castile, George Floyd, and Tyree Nichols. In addition to our discussion on police brutality, we're also going to touch on the history of police in America and how this history has created and maintained the systemic racism that we see in our criminal legal system. So for the first case of Philando Castile, most of the information from this case does come directly from the criminal complaint filed against Officer Yanez. So on July 16, 2016, in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, Philando Castile, a 30-year-old black man, was fatally shot seven times by Officer Geronimo Yanez after being pulled over for a broken brake light So it's at a traffic stop. Aftermath of the shooting was live-streamed on Facebook by Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and dash camera footage was later released by the police department that just kind of showed the events from a different perspective. Well, Reynolds only showed the aftermath of the events, whereas this dash camera footage showed the entirety of the events from the moment that Yanez pulled over Castile. Both of these videos were captured by news outlets, and people around the world saw all of these videos. They garnered millions of views, sparked outrage by many, and ignited many protests against police brutality. Both of these videos, the live stream and the dash camera footage, are available to the public, Um, But I do warn you, they do contain graphic images as well as vulgar language. But if you just kind of want a better understanding of this case and what it is we're going to be talking about, you can look these up, but just view at your own discretion. So as depicted in both the criminal complaint and then shown in the dash camera footage that was later released, just after 9 p.m. on July 6th, Yanez radioed in to another officer within the area and told him about his intent to pull over Castile. Yanez said that the reason he was going to pull over Castile was due to the broken brake light, but in reality, he was pulling over Castile because Castile matched the physical appearance of some suspects that were involved in a robbery just four days prior to this event. So Yanez followed Castile and he ran his plates and then pulled him over. Something of note was that Yanez never notified dispatch of his intent to conduct the stop, which is just kind of usual procedure, but he did not do that. After pulling over Castile, Yanez approached the driver's side window and informed Castile the reason for the stop, which was the broken brake light, and he asked for his driver's license and proof of insurance. Castile handed over his proof of insurance at this point, and then he also informed Yanez that he had a firearm on him. Yanez immediately replied with okay, but he quickly moved his right arm to his own holstered gun, and he said, okay, don't reach for it then, don't pull it out. Castile responded by saying, I'm not pulling it out. During an interview with Yanez following the shooting, Yanez said that at this point, Castile had turned his body away from Yanez, blocking his view of what was happening, and Yanez said he saw him reaching in between his seat and the center console. Yanez once again screamed, don't pull it out, but then pulled his own gun, firing seven shots in the direction of Castile. As you can see in the dash camera footage, 
This entire interaction lasted less than a minute. So it was very quick from the point that Giannis pulled over Castile, approached his car window, and then the firing of the shots. After these shots were fired was the point at which Reynolds' live stream began. In this live stream, you see Reynolds recount the events that took place from her point of view as the passenger of the vehicle. In the video, you see Castile in the driver's seat, and he is bleeding and unconscious. And you also see Giannis standing at the driver's side window still with his gun pulled and pointing into the car. You also see in this video a very poised and controlled Reynolds. She wasn't freaking out. She wasn't doing anything. She was complying with each of the officer's commands, telling her to put her hands up and then later to get out of the car. She was very poised and controlled throughout the entirety of what you can see on the live stream and the interactions. And then you also in this live stream can see a very frantic Yanez who was both visibly shaken and verbally in shock. Following this event, Yanez was charged on three counts. He was charged for manslaughter in the second degree, culpable negligence creating unreasonable risk, as well as two counts of dangerous weapons, intentional discharge of firearm that endangers safety, which accounted for the endangerment of safety of Reynolds, as well as her daughter, who was in the back seat of the car at the time of the shooting. On June 16th, 2017, nearly a year following these shootings, Yanez was actually acquitted of all charges. The next case we're going to be talking about is the murder of George Floyd. And as with the previous case, most of this information comes from the formal criminal complaint filed against Officer Chauvin. So on May 25th, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was murdered by police officer Derek Chauvin after officers responded to a call of a man using a counterfeit $20 bill to purchase cigarettes. This information has been corroborated with surveillance video of nearby businesses, the officer's body-worn camera footage, as well as witnesses' cell phone recordings of the incident. Much like the previous case, the footage spread like wildfire, garnering millions of views and initiating protests across the globe. Once again, this footage is available to the public. It is on the internet. You are able to look it up. And as with the last case, though, it does contain graphic images as well as vulgar language. So once again, just watch it at your own risk. But if you want to understand exactly what was happening and see for yourself the case that we'll be talking about, then you can go ahead and look that up. Just after 8 p.m. on May 25th, two officers responded to a call of a man purchasing cigarettes using a counterfeit $20 bill. These officers were Officer Cohen and Officer Lane, and upon arrival, they learned that the suspect, George Floyd, was sitting in a car just around the corner from the store, and then the officers located that car, they ordered Floyd out of the car, and then they placed him in handcuffs. At this point, Officer Lane sat Floyd on the sidewalk and gained his identifying information. He then asked him if he was on anything, as in drugs, due to the presence of foam he saw in the corner of his mouth, and Officer Lane informed Floyd that he was being arrested for passing counterfeit currency. The two officers led Floyd to the squad car, where they went to go place him into the back seat of the car. However, Floyd stiffened up and fell to the ground, but explained to officers that he was not resisting arrest, he was just extremely claustrophobic and did not want to sit in the car. At this point in time, when Cohen and Lang were trying to get Floyd into the backseat of the car, was when Derek Chauvin and his partner, Officer Tao, arrived as backup, and they immediately joined in on this situation and joined the forces to physically place Floyd into the backseat of the squad car. 
After about five minutes of this back and forth struggle between Floyd and the officers, Chauvin actually pulled Floyd out and away from the squad car where he went to the ground face down and still handcuffed. At this point, Officer Kewen laid on Floyd's back and held him down. Officer Lane held his legs down, and this is when Officer Chauvin placed his knee on the head and neck of Floyd. As this was happening, Floyd repeatedly stated that he could not breathe and was pleading for the officers to let him up. During this encounter, Officer Lane had actually asked Officer Chauvin if they should roll Floyd to his side because he was worried about excited delirium, which is just kind of like an extreme state of agitation due to usually drugs, but can be attributed to other things. And sometimes this can also be very fatal to the person that is experiencing it. But Chauvin responded, no, stay put where we have him. That's why we have him on his stomach. While the officers were holding him down, Floyd's movements began to slow and his sound decreased until Floyd ultimately stopped breathing and speaking altogether. Officer Cohen checked for a pulse but was unable to find one, yet the officers still remained in their positions holding Floyd down. It was only later when the ambulance arrived that Chauvin actually removed his knee from Floyd's neck and allowed for the paramedics to place him on a gurney. Floyd was pronounced dead at the hospital. In the video footage, as well as in the criminal complaint, you can see Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, with about a third of that time being when Floyd was unconscious and therefore pretty much no longer required the amount of force to be restrained that Chauvin was placing on him. Chauvin was charged on three counts, second-degree murder, unintentional while committing a felony, third-degree murder, perpetrating imminently dangerous act and evincing a depraved mind, and second-degree manslaughter with culpable negligence creating unreasonable risk. Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts and was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. Chauvin was also found guilty in a federal civil trial for violating Floyd's constitutional rights, and he was sentenced to 21 years in prison for that verdict, and he is currently serving his sentences simultaneously. In an article written by Amy Ferlitti and published by PBS NewsHour, details the charges and sentencing of the other officers that were involved. So all three of the other officers, Lane, Cohen, and Tao, were charged criminally for aiding and abetting second-degree unintentional murder, as well as aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. All three of them were also facing a federal civil trial for violating Floyd's constitutional rights. So Officer Lane actually pled guilty to the criminal charges he was facing and is now serving a three-year sentence. And he was also found guilty for the federal civil trial and is now serving two and a half year sentence for the violation of Floyd's rights. Gwen and Tao, however, pled not guilty to the criminal charges and they are currently awaiting trial as well as sentencing. But they are both currently serving three and a half years in prison as part of their federal sentence for their violation of Floyd's rights. The third case that we'll be covering is a fairly recent case and it took place just about two months ago in early January. But despite the timeline, the release of this footage from the case once again spread very rapidly and caused national uproar, as yet another black man was killed at the hands of police and it was broadcasted once again to the nation. Body camera and surveillance footage of this event have been released by the police department and are available to the public. Once again, I will say, it does contain graphic images as well as vulgar language, so if you want to watch to get a better idea of what it is that happened and what it is we'll be talking about, you can go ahead and look those up, but just view it at your own discretion. Most of the information for this case comes from a comprehensive timeline created by Chiara Alfonseca, Nikila Carter, and Ivan Pereira that was published by the ABC News. 
This timeline continues to be updated as more facts come to light and as more updates about the case are provided by the Memphis Police Department. So on January 7, 2023, in Memphis, Tennessee, Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, was beaten to death by police officers following a traffic stop for alleged reckless driving. Officers' original statements of what happened in during this encounter had said that Nichols had initially ran from the police upon first approach, and that is why they chased him down and used the amount of force that they act that they did. However, with the release of the body camera footage as well as the surveillance footage, the initial interaction between officers and Nichols showed that multiple officers forcefully pulled Nichols from the car, restraining him and pushing him to the ground. So Nichols did not immediately run. The officers actually immediately restrained him and put him on the ground. The officers can also be heard making comments such as, I'm going to beat your, insert bleep, and I'm going to tase your, another bleep. The footage also shows Nichols regaining his footing, but one of the officers then attempted to deploy a stun gun, and that was actually when Nichols ran away. So it wasn't that he ran away as soon as the officers approached him, it was he ran away after the officers pushed him to the ground, threatened him, and attempted to deploy a stun gun on him. The officers then chased Nichols and they apprehended him. Once they apprehended him, surveillance footage as well as body camera footage shows that Two officers were holding Nichols down on the ground as a third kicked him, as a fourth striked him with a baton, and as a fifth officer stood by and watched the events occur. These officers severely beat Nichols for many minutes, and they even pepper sprayed him, all while Nichols remained defenseless. And in the videos, it's kind of heart-wrenching because Nichols can even be heard calling for his mother, who, as we later found out, lived just about two blocks down the road from where all of this was occurring. After beating Nichols, the officers dragged him into the street and leaned him up against the squad car, where as you can see in the video, he remained slumped over with his hands behind his back. Nichols remained in this position for about 20 minutes before one of the officers actually came over and attempted to provide him aid. Shortly after that, the ambulance and paramedics arrived and transported Nichols to the hospital. Three days later, on January 10th, 2023, Nichols died in the hospital where he was being treated for his injuries. After an autopsy was performed, it showed that Nichols suffered from extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating, with the injuries consistent with what was observed through the footage of his fatal encounter with the law enforcement. So the five officers that attacked and beat Nichols were Tadarius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Desmond Mills Jr., Emmett Martin III, and Justin Smith, and all five of those officers were charged with second-degree murder, official misconduct, official oppression, and kidnapping. However, on February 17, 2023, all five officers pled not guilty to all of these charges. The Memphis Police Department took action very quickly, and on January 20, 2023, just two weeks after the incident occurred, all five of these officers were fired from their position within the police department. Along with that, two other officers have since been fired due to their involvement in the event, as well as the three paramedics who, who were originally deployed to the scene due to their failure to conduct an adequate patient assessment of Mr. Nichols. This event also sparked a federal investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigations, as well as the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, who are looking into matters of a federal civil rights violation. So now that we kind of have a background of some of these more infamous cases of police brutality and those that have been widely broadcasted into the public and gained national media attention, we're going to look at just kind of what it is 
this idea of police brutality is and how it affects those of racial minorities within our country. So according to Lynn Peoples in her journal article, What the Data Says About Police Brutality and Racial Bias and Which Reforms Might Work, an estimated 1,000 civilians are killed at the hands of police officers each year. While this may not seem like a large number in comparison to like the grander United States population, that is far too many people that are dying at the hands of those who are sworn to protect and serve our communities. Like These people are supposed to be protecting us from crime, yet they're the ones that are killing us. Further data goes to show that black men are two and a half times more likely than white men to be killed by police during their lifetime. And those black men who are killed at the hands of officers were twice as likely as their white counterparts to be unarmed. This disproportionate treatment of black men by police is further emphasized in Stephen Schwartz's article, Police Brutality and Racism in America, where he states that black Americans count for just 13% of the United States population, but they account for more than 25% of all police shooting victims, making police use of force among one of the leading causes of death for many young men of color. That's insane, and that's frankly disgusting. Like, that is horrible to see just how disproportionately affected young black men are by police violence and police brutality. This relationship between police officers and black Americans can be traced back to the early days of our country and the unfortunate history of slavery. This history kind of laid the foundation for the systemic racism that plagues our criminal legal system today. So we're going to get a little bit more into that and just kind of talk about it. So it can be argued that slavery technically never went away, but it rather evolved and reformed to fit the expectations of the modern society during that point in time. The following information comes from an article written by Hollis Lynch, which details the treatment of African Americans in America throughout the years. So we're going to start with slavery as it is described in the history books, which spanned from about the early 1600s until the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. However, when looking at history, you can see that this really wasn't the end of the discrimination against Black Americans in our country, and following the Emancipation Proclamation, this population was still heavily controlled, heavily oppressed, and heavily discriminated against for far longer than that, as you can be seen in the cases that we just talked about. The next form of slavery that we saw within our history was that of indentured servitude, So indentured servitude was basically slavery by another name, if you want to call it that. So black Americans who had been convicted of a crime, which many were created with the sole purpose of criminalizing freed slaves, they would serve out their sentence on contract to an individual. So this basically was a way to replace slave labor with still extremely cheap labor, sometimes even free labor, but in a way that was more socially acceptable and in line with these new values of the abolishment of slavery. However, whichever way you look at it, this was simply just another way for white civilians to showcase their supremacy and their control over the minority counterparts. We saw this form of slavery slowly dissipate and transform into another type, which we saw with the 1896 decision of Plessy v. Ferguson, which is the Supreme Court decision that established this notion of separate but equal. Following this decision was the institution of Jim Crow laws, which has kind of further solidified this idea and made it more of a legal matter rather than just like a social matter. So there was specific laws set in place that required blacks and whites to be separate during this time in society. This era gave rise to the civil rights movement and the eventual decision of Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which actually overturned that decision held in Plessy v. Ferguson 
So it overturned the decision of the separate but equal. This led to a slow but sure desegregation of many communities and institutions, and it also forced the federal government to kind of finally take a stand against the discrimination of the Black Americans in our country. The most modern form of oppression that we see against many of the Black Americans in our country takes place in the form of the war on drugs, as well as the over-policing and criminalization of people of color that followed the war on drugs. So the war on drugs specifically targeted minority groups, and it caused much of the police's attention to be focused towards these more vulnerable populations. That just kind of grew and grew out of control from this era, as we have seen in like the stop and frisk era of in New York, as well as just kind of like racial discrimination, racial profiling, all of the police brutality that we talked about earlier in today's podcast, just it focused the attention of the police onto these populations that were already being targeted within our society. It criminalized Black Americans and racial minorities for things that their white counterparts were basically getting away with. From these interactions and negative attitude, tensions between racial minorities and law enforcement have risen to an alarming level, and the outcome of such can be seen in the various demonstrations of police brutality that we see today, as evidenced earlier in this podcast. The foundation of policing itself also has ties to these early eras of slavery in our country's history. Most of this information comes from Christian Williams' book, Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America. So the first form of distinctive policing practices within our country can be traced back to this early time of the 1600s and with the establishment of slave patrols. So slave patrols were essentially groups of white men who were in charge of capturing runaway slaves as well as preventing any form of slave revolution. So they were essentially just people that were appointed to a position created to keep slaves in check, as if they already weren't oppressed enough. But what do I know? These slave patrols later evolved into city guards, whose focus evolved from simply being the prevention of any slave gatherings and slave revolts, as well as to focusing on the cutdown of urban crime. These city guards wore uniforms and carried weapons such as muskets or swords, and they would patrol the area as a unit of city guards. There'd be multiple of them, not just one or two. This transition from slave patrols to city guards also marked the transition from this kind of job being considered a military task to it being considered a civil task. So with this transition and this identity as a civil task, um, it granted these individuals the authorization to use force, it gave them general enforcement powers, and it made them a publicly controlled entity rather than just kind of like individuals doing what they thought should be done. Along with the growth of government and the establishment of political structures, we saw more of a formalized police force becoming into play. These more formalized police officers were overseen by powerful political players within the community, and they were granted even more responsibilities as these powerful individuals saw fit. So become so there was a clear transition from individuals just patrolling because they thought that was what needed to be done to people specifically instructing these people on what it was they needed to be doing and what their sole responsibilities were. This new form of policing became the most modernized form of policing that we saw, in 1843, when the mayor of New York created the first single centralized police department. As I said, this police department was the foundation for all modern policing to follow, and it closely resembles what it is we think of when we think of policing today. So this creation created a single institution with the sole purpose to enforce the law. 
These officers also held the specialized function of policing the community. That was their responsibility was to police the community as well as enforce the laws that were in place. Those involved would patrol 24 hours of the day, whereas past slave patrols and city guards were just kind of whenever they had the chance. Most of them were during the day. Sometimes they would have a couple cities that would have them patrolling at night. But this was the first time that we saw a patrol that encompassed all 24 hours of the day. Those who were employees of this institution were also formal and salary personnel. So they were being paid to do this. They were, it was a form of employment. It wasn't simply just like a task that was given to them. So seeing the roots of our modern day policing and just how ingrained it is in the racist tone of our country's history, it's really not hard to imagine why there's this relationship between law enforcement and racial minorities that's so volatile. Like, it's just sad to say it makes sense like it just clearly there has never been a relationship that was positive between these two groups so it doesn't make sense as to why we would see that now without a clear reform or something happening along the way that would change that relationship it's just stuck with these racial undertones and blatant racism and so throughout the years it's just frankly it's gotten worse if you ask me But when discussing the possible reasoning behind these cases of police violence and this police use of force in general, one thing worth mentioning as a potential correlation between the two would be the militarization of police in America. So in the journal article, Police Militarization and the Use of Lethal Force, author Edward Lawson defines militarism as a set of beliefs and values that place great importance on the threat and the use of force as a means to solve problems. Therefore, militarization is the implementation of this sort of ideology. This can be further broken down into hierarchical and operational police militarization. So hierarchical militarization is the encouragement of such practices by elected officials, as well as supportive cues from leaders within the organization. So the overall culture of law enforcement can kind of lend itself to this form of militarization because Starting from the very beginning of a police officer's career in training, the police officer's role within the community is described as them being warriors. Like, they are supposed to fight crime, they are supposed to catch criminals, they're supposed to keep their community safe. And so it kind of gives them this position of power and places them on this pedestal that creates a very distinctive us-versus-them mentality. The second form of militarization is operational. This looks at the direct relationship between law enforcement and military. This looks at the direct cooperation between these two entities and how the military helps out the police or how the police help out the military. Kind of like when we saw in these protests, many of the police departments in these cities would call in the National Guard or military forces to help them control these protests and these riots and these looters. So that would demonstrate a direct cooperation between the two entities. It also looks at the existence of specialized police units that are largely modeled after traditional military operations. The biggest one of this would be the the SWAT team, or there's a couple others depending on which police department you look at, but they have these teams of people that are trained more like military officers would be rather than just simple police officers and like public officers. When looking at how this may affect police use of force and the lethal use of force, it all comes down to the context of the situations that these officers find themselves in. When interacting with citizens, police largely have a lack of supervision. Usually it's just one-on-one or maybe the police officer has a partner, but there's no supervisor usually at the scene with them. 
Police officers also have a significant discretion in decision-making. There's not really, like, depending on the situation, there is a variety of ways that they could respond to the situation, and it's up to them to decide how they are going to respond. They also have a distinct amount of power over the citizen as well as the encounter as a whole. In our society, police have an inherent amount of power over citizens. It's just kind of how it's always been. They just are the ones that have the control of the situation and are able to manipulate the situation in a way that benefits them and their goals. Whereas the citizen has to listen to that power and has to listen to what it is the police say or they can face consequences for their actions. When looking at this specifically, the main portion that we're concerned with is the police discretion. So police's personal discretion is shaped by both their personal experiences and their beliefs, as well as those of the institution that they work for as well. So police officers working for an institution that has been militarized and prioritizes violence as a means of problem solving, it may lead them to make these discretionary decisions that involve an excessive and sometimes lethal amount of force. I just want to make a note that this possibility of police militarization and correlation with lethal force, it's by no means an end-all be-all reasoning behind these police actions and their brutality and violence and excessive use of force, but it is something to take into consideration, and I think it is something that will be talked about more often going forward just because it is such a extreme mentality and the fact that it does prioritize violence in an institution where those people are meant to protect and serve rather than brutalize and kill, I think it is going to be something that is brought up a lot more often. So I just kind of want to give you a background on what has been talked about so far. This epidemic of police violence against racial minorities is not just something that can come to an end unless the entire criminal legal system reforms itself with the goal of eliminating this deep ingrained systemic racism. Police encounters with minority groups only account for one area of the system in which we see this blatant racism. You can look at court proceedings, you can look at different trial verdicts, you can look at the prison populations, wrongful convictions, you can look at every single aspect of the criminal legal system, and it is clear that every single aspect exemplifies how racial minorities are disproportionately criminalized in our country every single day. It's insane when you look at the numbers and the statistics and everything. It's just... It's hard to comprehend, really, just how blatant it is and how there has been nothing done to fix it. With the new age of technology and rapid growth of social media, people are becoming more aware of the problem and they are becoming more vocal about finding a solution. These videos that are being posted of these different incidences, they're showing the world what is happening and they're showing the world that something needs to be done to fix this problem. That's what these protests are about. People are finally seeing what is happening and people are deciding to take a stand against the criminal legal system and against the police in America. However, like I said, this is just the first step in a lengthy battle of reformation, but I do want to say that it is a step nonetheless And it is a step that is necessary for both the integrity of our justice system as well as for the future of our country. I know this episode was a little more opinionated, I guess you could say, than other episodes. But I think it is such an important discussion and it is something that needs to be discussed. It is something that some people tend to shy away from or if people think that it doesn't involve them or it doesn't affect them, this affects every single person in America. And it's something that we all need to learn about and it's something that we all need to take a stand against. But with that being said, this concludes this episode of Nefarious. I hope you guys did enjoy this episode as much as you can. I hope you learned something. I hope you were inspired to do something or say something. I just hope 
that overall that this episode was enjoyable for you and you took something away from the content we discussed. But on that note, thank you for listening and I hope you choose to tune back in next week for another fun-filled episode.